Hey, Terry, what are you doing? I will extol thee, O Lord, for thou hast lifted me up and not made my foes to rejoice over me. Huh? What are you talking about? I'm just doing what the Bible tells me to, for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. But what does that mean? Well, when David gave over the kingship to Solomon, First Chronicles says they were to stand every morning to praise and thank the Lord. And they were to do the same in the evening. So I figure if it's good enough for them, then it's good enough for me. Yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking about. But, you know, if I remember correctly, I think they were talking about the priests. <laughs> sure, sure. But you remember what the song says, right? Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word. And so I'm just taking him at his word. I don't think that's what the song's talking about. Okay, uh, now I need to remember the text from Jeremiah. Beware of your friends. Do not trust your brother. For every brother is a deceiver, and every friend a slanderer. I think you're treading on some shaky ground. You know, Terry, I think you're the one sounding a bit shaky. You know, don't you even think about what you're quoting? Sure, Tanae, but it's all about faith. It's about taking scripture to heart and believing in it. I mean, don't you remember that song, Trust and Obey, for there's no other way? Yeah, but what is it that you're trusting exactly? I mean, we've got to read and study and learn what the, you know, the context of what the scripture has to say. Really, there's some pretty strange verses in the Bible if you look at the text just by itself. Like that one, what is it? Oh yeah, do not cook a kid in its mother's milk. Ew, that, is that in the Bible? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I guess it's good advice, right? I mean, it's the most obvious text I've ever heard about child abuse. <laughs> Come on, Terry, they're talking about goats. You know, a kid is a baby goat. That's why I'm saying, you have to look at the context. But, okay, but, but all, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is profitable, profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for, for instruction in righteousness. I mean, that's what it says. I know, Terry. You know what? I believe in scripture, too. But the thing is, is we need to be thoughtful and mindful to how we approach it. See, God wants us to use our minds, not just our eyes when we read. Okay, so if, if you think about the text, about um, it's saying the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, doesn't really mean God's eyeballs are rolling around, does it? <laughs> no, I don't think that's what they're talking about. Whew, that's a relief. <laughs> So what about Isaiah 9.14? Oh, yeah, that one's a real weird one. So all scripture is inspired and good for us. We know this, yes? We know this. All scripture is good for us. It's important to read our Bibles. We can thank the George Barna group. They've done another survey. They do one every year since 1984, asking Christians in America 
about religion and spirituality. We can thank the Barna Group. Just two months ago, they came up with the results of their most recent survey, and they're telling us once again that Christians in America don't read the Bible. We read the Bible less and less every year. But what's interesting about their survey this year is while we read the Bible less and less, and while actually our beliefs are shifting, it's the first year in all the years they've been testing where they can actually see People are holding less to biblical ideas than they used to be. Ideas about who God is, who Jesus is, what the devil is up to in the world, what, what evangelism is about. People are, are sort of relaxing away from what they would call orthodox teaching from the Bible. The one belief that hasn't changed is that American Christians believe the Bible is true. The Bible is true in all that it teaches. And the feedback on that always comes in high. The Barna Group says it's really kind of interesting. We have one foot in the Bible and sort of one foot out. I mean, we love God and we want to follow Jesus, but we really don't understand how the Bible is involved anymore. It's an interesting place to be in American Christianity, isn't it? And I wonder if Adventist Christianity mirrors this at all. If we are reading the Bible less and less, and does it affect how we're thinking and believing, and do we have one foot in the biblical community and one foot somewhere else? In your bulletin this morning, there's this goldenrod or or orange, yellow-colored sheet. For those of you who are regular members, we've hoped you filled one of these out. This is a conversation the elders are having here at your church. As we've watched our attendance during Sabbath school time sort of relax over the years. Now, it's not just at the Calamasa Church. It's, it's in all Adventist churches. It's all across the country. And one of the questions your leadership team is asking is, why? Why do we come and study less together? And I hope if you haven't, you'll take the time to fill one of these out and leave it on the last pew here you know, as you exit the sanctuary this morning. What is it that makes us, that, what changes inside of us that we're reading the Bible less and less as time goes on? We know it's good. We know the Bible is good for us. It's sort of like my grandmother's whole wheat bread. Did you have a grandma who baked that kind? Starts with good whole wheat flour and then you just sort of add one tablespoon of everything good for you. You come up with this loaf, solid, substantial Well, it's good for toast. (laughs) Bible's sort of like that. We know it's good for correction and teaching. Why why don't we read it as much anymore? I'll take some guesses, but I don't know. Your guesses would probably be as good. Do we read it less because we, we just really don't understand some of it? So we really read the parts that we like, and in fact, sometimes we commit those parts to memory because they're precious to us. And at certain times in our lives, we read it even more. I remember my mom's here visiting this morning from the Northwest, and I remember three years ago when both you and Dad were in the hospital together, Mom, and we came home to visit, and here are note cards placed all around her house with Bible texts. Because now, at a certain place in life with certain crisis, these texts mean something. So... So is it that we, we read, read it when we need it, and when we don't, we don't? Is it that 
We studied it once upon a time in the academy classroom or somewhere in college, and we learned enough for doctrine, for baptism, and we did that, and so we've set it aside. Is that part of the reason? Is it that it's, you know, it's kind of long? And, and really, do you need 66 books? It's sort of like my husband tells me regularly, if you can say it in 10 minutes, why do you take 30 And I see he has 300 friends. (laughs) If really the gospel could be summarized in one Bible verse, John 3.16, why do I need 66? Or is it that some parts of of the, the, the text are so confusing and puzzling, and even as one website I read this week described, gruesome, describes a gruesome God. So I close the Bible because I don't like the God that it reveals. Maybe we just get comfortable letting other people read for us. You hire pastors. I have theology professors. If I get in a jam, I can make a phone call, send an email, get a book off the library shelf. You can come and have a Sabbath school teacher teach you your lesson. Is it just that we sort of relax into other people reading the Bible for us? I'm reminded of a phrase Jesus uses in the New Testament. If you want to take a Bible from the pew, we'll be in the Gospel of Mark this morning. We studied this passage last summer when we did the Ten Commandments, and we ended with Jesus and the two great commandments in Mark chapter 12. Recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, all three of those Gospels, there is part of the text there that we really didn't talk about at all in Mark chapter 12. It's interesting to me, and I'll say more in a minute, Jesus is being asked questions from the crowd, and there's been a long debate going on. Some of you know the context there very well. One wise scribe says from the crowd, Teacher, good teacher, okay, Rabbi, if you're all that, could you just summarize everything now? What's the greatest commandment? That's the question. And Jesus replies in verse 29 of Mark chapter 12. The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no command greater than these. Now, in your Bible, your footnotes or in the margins, you might see that Jesus is quoting his Bible. He's quoting the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6, Leviticus chapter 19. It is interesting, though, if you turn over to Deuteronomy 6, I'll put it up on the screen for you. What Deuteronomy 6 says is this. You hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Do you see what Jesus added in the Gospel of Mark? You shall love the Lord with all your mind. A good translation of that is, you shall love the Lord your God from the source of your intelligence. You shall love the Lord your God from the source of your reasoning, from the source of your questioning, from the source of your understanding and perceiving. You should love the Lord your God from the source of your mind. Now, it's interesting to me why Jesus added this word when we get 
to the New Testament. Why wasn't it sufficient? Love the Lord your God with your heart and your soul and your strength. It seems like that sort of summarizes it all. But here Jesus pulls in one more word. Maybe it's because, and this is my guess, that in the Hebrew world, the Deuteronomy passage, when they said heart, that takes in the mind. That is the seat of the intelligence. But now, when you fast forward 1,500 years later, and Jesus is in front of a Greek listening and speaking audience and, and, and worlds away, really, socially and culturally, he adds a word that's distinct. Because for a Greek-speaking audience, the heart is also the seat of emotion. It's an emotional organ. So there can be no confusion, really, with the layering of words, love God with your heart your mind, your soul, your strength. I would think it would be very clear to the followers of Jesus, you're going to be engaged thinking in the Jesus community. Everyone will be using their mind. From the source of all your perception, you'll be involved. I don't think they could miss it. And so we sit 2,000 years later with the same text in front of us. The church, the community that follows after Jesus, has a task of thinking. Love the Lord your God from the source of your intellect, your perceiving, your understanding. Now, I, I suppose the passage could be taken a lot of different ways. We could simply say, when you love the Lord with your mind, it means wherever you are during your day. So at school, do your best with your mind. In your job, use all of your capacities to do your work well. Wherever you are and however you engage in the world, use your mind on a regular and daily basis. I, I suppose the text could mean that. And it makes sense to us, doesn't it? When we seek services, we really want thinking people helping us. We would like a thinking government, wouldn't we? Wouldn't we pray for a thinking government these days? We would like thinking healthcare professionals looking after our body. I would like, frankly, for my uh, healthcare providers to be current on their continuing education units. I'd like the best, actually. So we applaud thinking and using our mental capacities. But I wonder if the text in a communal setting could really be talking about something else. The community is to use its capacities together. The community is to think. The community from the source of its intelligence will get busy together. The community will do this work. And when the community of Jesus' followers does this work, I think they're probably not engaging in whatever it is in the world. I think maybe this passage may specifically be thinking about God and my place in God's world and God's creation and what this life is about and how to explain this to the world. We're to to understand and think about God with our whole mind together. We'll be working on it together. I think the commitment applies to us this, like this in a communal way. Now, if you're just visiting today, you've just stepped in on a few, few weeks here where we're talking about what a church family does together, honest, the honest stuff and the hard stuff, the, what we don't always talk about from up front. And I certainly hope you'll put June 23 on your calendar when Art Earl will lead us through a conversation with, with why we medicate as Christians, why we choose to medicate. 
It'll be a very important Sabbath, and please be here today. Why, why think? Why is it important? Why does Jesus say, engage from the source of your mind, and what does it look like for our community? I'm going to suggest a few ideas of what I think good thinking might look like. See how these fit for you. I think that good thinking is a gift. The fact that we can do it is a gift of grace. That you have a mind that processes. That we can do this cognitive work. It's not because of us. It's because of a God who gifted us that way. Good thinking is a gift. Good thinking involves all of us. Good thinking means everyone's mind together. It is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. who says, Nothing pains some people more than having to think. I don't know why thinking is hard work for some of us. Why thinking is something we don't always want to get around to. It was 1990 when Mark Knoll wrote this book that caused quite a groundswell in the scholarly community at least, the scandal of the evangelical mind, where his thought was really, there is no such thing as an evangelical mind. Really, there aren't thinking Christians out there, was the question or the thesis that he posed. Where are the thinking Christians in the world? Why is it we resist thinking? Is there such a parallel in the Adventist community? I don't know. I called my cousin who is... Pacific Press. He happens to be the president of Pacific Press. And once in a while we have these conversations. And I said, tell me what sells well at the press. Pacific Press has been around since the 1870s, right? They produce the primary treasurer, some of the papers in our Sabbath school room, the signs of the times, a lot of books. What sells well at the press? What are we buying when we go to the ABC and buy a Pacific Press book? Would you like to hear what sells well? Storybooks. Children's books, sharing material, little tracks that we would give to other people, those sell fairly well, he tells me. End time books, and name recognition authors, and I'm not going to give their names, they've got enough publicity already, but there are two or three of them that Adventists seem to buy. And if it's got that person's name on it, we don't even open it up to see what they're talking about, we just buy the book, it's name recognition. The two or three best-selling authors for Pacific Press. And rounding out the list of top sellers, cookbooks. We buy a lot of cookbooks, apparently. What sells least was a question I also asked. Number one, worst seller, deep theological books. Except for, perhaps, Daniel and Revelation conversation. But someone can do some careful scholarly work and get it down to maybe 200, 225 pages and and off the sweat of their brow, give it to the press and put it in the Adventist Book Center and we pretty much don't buy it. Sells poorly. You know what else sells poorly? Any book or track having to do with the topic of salvation. Isn't that interesting? We buy cookbooks before we buy salvation books. It's interesting. I'm not sure exactly what it says about it. Why, what is it about thinking that we sometimes avoid as a community? 
Now, I'm gonna, since my mom's here visiting, and this rarely happens, I'm going to ask you a question, Mom. And she agreed to answer, so it's okay, people. It's, these are just 300 of your closest friends, Mom. I remember you were telling me a few months ago that when it came to the Sabbath school study time at your church, and she's from Vancouver Church in the Oregon Conference, this beautiful new church, um, sort of a, a landmark church for the Oregon Conference now, I remember mom telling me a few months ago when she opened the Sabbath school quarterly, ugh, do you remember when we had this conversation about the quarterly? You went to Sabbath school and you said, this thing is so complicated. Do you remember what you said next? No. Are you willing to, oh, you don't remember? remember. You're willing to admit it to all these people? Yes, (laughs) I guess. You said, I'm going to just close my quarterly and not study it anymore. Why do they have to make it so complicated? It is as if people get awards for using big words and making it more complex and more convoluted. Do you you remember? You said, I'm just not going to study this quarter. And then you said something like, you think that's wrong. (laughs) Does that sound right? Kind of. Kind of. (laughs) Keep the microphone. I'm coming back in a while. It shouldn't be that complicated, and it shouldn't make some of us feel like we have less intelligence or more intelligence in a community. I'm reminded of a wonderful quote from a seminary professor. You're not called to be brilliant. You're called to be diligent. Everyone does their part. Everyone does their part. A thinking community involves all of us and should be a place where all of us feel safe to contribute our little part. Now, you might not like what I have to say, and, and I might not like what you have to say, but that's all right. We still get to contribute. And, and we still make room for that. A good Sabbath school teacher, by the way, knows where the dominant voices are in the room. A good classroom teacher also knows there are some of us who just like to hear the sound of our voice. A good classroom teacher knows how to make room for those who are not sure they're going to be welcome to comment. Good thinking involves all of us, even if we're shy, even if we're not sure we're grasping what's being presented. It might not be you at all. It might be the author of the lesson. Good thinking might not be attractive at first. Now, Mom, I'm going to ask you another question. At Thanksgiving time, Grandma Nelson would always put a jello on the table. Remember that green yes. thing? Yes. I think only Adventists do jello this way. What was in that? That green jello. Walnuts. Walnuts and jello. Go ahead. Celery. Celery and jello. Okay. Cottage cheese. <laughs> Everything that by the time you start mixing it and turning it out into a bowl looks like it should not be eaten. <laughs> right. What else? And was there mayonnaise or something like that in there? No, I don't think there was mayonnaise. It could have been pineapple. Pineapple. So have some of you, you have made this recipe. <laughs> Do you like it? See, my sister likes it, but I just, I see that green jello and I think, oh, do I have to eat it? See, it, in a community sharing ideas, it's a little bit like that. I offer up green jello. It might not be your thing, but you do as my mom taught us to do. You put a little bit on your plate and you give grandma her chance, right? 
So in a community, there's a lot of room for us to roam around. So I read whatever someone puts in my hand, their ideas of theology. Maybe it's not the same as mine. Maybe mine are not the same as yours. That's what it is to be in a community together thinking. And we need all of these perspectives. Why? Because your perspective will enrich mine. Because you've been someplace I haven't been. Because the world of an 18-year-old is so different than the world of a 70-year-old. We have to have everyone's perspective. Good thinking allows for and encourages all of us to be in the conversation together. That's good thinking. Good thinking is also good listening. You know how we're told that we're in the middle of a debate. Usually we're not listening. We're thinking what we'll say next when you're engaged in a conversation like that. Good thinking means good listening. It means turning everything off inside and being humble and generous in response. These are community rules for good thinking, I believe. I'll never forget going back to school, undergraduate level as an adult, where you already feel embarrassed and on the spot because you stick out like a sore thumb with all the 20-year-olds. There was one day in class, in a biblical studies class, where I gave my opinion of something, and the moment I stopped speaking, there was a gentleman from across the room who threw his finger out in the air, and he was old like I was, and he threw his finger out in the air, and he just yelled, bogus, that is bogus, bogus, bogus on that side of the room. I remember thinking, bogus, I haven't heard that word forever bogus. And he went on to discredit everything I said. And at first, I was sad. I was embarrassed. I was hurt. And then I got a little angry, right? Bogus. Went to the library and looked it up. (laughs) Bogus? I'm not bogus. Bogus means disingenuous. Bogus means a phony or a fake. How can he say that what my feelings on the text are bogus? So I decided to get even. I'm going to take that word bogus and I'm going to write it on every chalkboard in the bottom of Whole Memorial Auditorium in big words, big letters, and I'm going to put a definition under it and just sit down and see what he says when he walks into the classroom. What an idiot for telling me I'm bogus. And then the Spirit of the Lord came upon me. (laughs) Taught me good news. Good thinking is always generous and humble and listens. We don't do anyone any good by engaging in that kind of a debate. We just hurt each other. Would you agree? It doesn't have any place in the body of Christ. Good thinking requires honest Bible scholarship. Towards honest Bible work, I would have enough to say to last us weeks from the pulpit. It happens to be my favorite topic. I would just say, mention three or four things. Towards good, honest Bible work as a community, we could do better at a few things. We could do better at understanding the human elements of Scripture, that God Almighty chooses people, people, to take a pen and write down their experience they've had with God, that God subjects his character to that, that he's willing to let that go on paper, that the human and the divine come together in such a unique way in our Bible. We would do better to understand that. We could do better to understand that the human part of the Bible never, never takes away from its power and its inspiration. 
We could do better to understand the communities that developed the Bible and the differences between the various communities behind 66 books and the time spans between when they remembered these things and they write them down. We could do better to honor that and thereby explain why the Bible seems to argue back and forth with itself. We would do better to acknowledge that than rather to pretend it really doesn't say over here, God remembers your sins no more, and, it re- and over there it says, if you don't forgive, I'll never forgive you. How do you reconcile things like that in the Bible other than to understand the communities that are developing them, to understand the human components that write these things down? We could do better if we would understand our Bible as this family scrapbook that we've talked about for a couple of years together, not a text, a proof text um, dictionary. And I believe we'll have to remind ourselves over and over and over, this is not a collection of proof texts so that we can battle that leads nowhere as damages and as worship wars are Bible battles in the church. Look at just about any crisis in the Adventist church worldwide right now. You trace it back to its origins and most of it will come right back to the Bible, the way we're deciding to interpret the Bible. It's not a collection of proof texts. It's rather a collection of experiences. You, you just never can prove an experience, can you? We could do better at that. We could do better at being consistent with our interpretations of Scripture, admitting when we all of a sudden jump to a literal word-for-word interpretation. Adventist Christians have never been that. We've always been thought-inspiration people. But once in a while, we jump in and out of that, and we pick and choose which passages. We could do better at acknowledging when we do that. We could be a little more honest about that. We could be more honest when we have special places in the Bible where we go most often. And in the Adventist community, because of our beginnings in the mid-19th century in New England during a time in the world where everyone was consumed with the end of the age, Daniel and Revelation became very important to us. It's called a canon within a canon if you have special parts of the Bible that you, you have a higher status for, that you hold in higher esteem. We could be very honest about maybe where we've done that in the past and maybe what we haven't been reading while we've been occupied with special parts of the Bible. For me, my question has been the last few years, where have been the teachings and sayings of Jesus in our church teaching and doctrine? If Jesus is to reveal the invisible God, why haven't the teachings and sayings of Jesus been more elevated to us as Christ followers? I have that big question. It's what I study in my spare time. We could do better with that, and we could do better at at understanding that because we don't deal with things well all the time when it comes to our Bible, we have some generations of young adults and teenagers who really are disenchanted with it, that we bear some responsibility. I can never send my children off to church, off to Sabbath school, off to the academy, and expect someone else to teach them what to do with their Bible. I have to do that. Now I hope when I bring them to church and Sabbath school and the academy, I'll find a supporting environment. But parents and grandparents, it's our responsibility to teach our children how to read their Bibles. We can do a little better there. Finally, good thinking never ends. It just remains open. Do do you ever see a spot where Jesus said to the disciples, and now you graduate? You've learned it all. Do you ever see that? 
in all the discourses, the farewell speeches, does he ever say, this is the end of it, now just go, and if you can remember everything I taught you, that would be enough. We never read that in the scripture. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 5. Whenever the people of God are growing in grace, they will be constantly obtaining a clearer understanding of his word. They will discern new light and beauty in its sacred truths. This has been true in the history of the church in all ages, and thus it will continue to the end. We keep the Bible open because we're still here. And remember, it is open. We never use the Bible to close a conversation. We always use it to open another one. So because here and now always change and we're not home with God in some other place, we keep our Bible open and our task will be ongoing. We'll do this work together. Because really we send space shuttles up into the sky far beyond, like yesterday. Could Jesus' disciples have imagined a world where space shuttles go up? Because really this week, scientists are working on reprogramming mature cells to become embryonic cells. That's the world we live in. Because we, we really do have more than 200 areas of conflict all around the world where people are real, really fighting and, and our young adults really go there and serve. And so we keep the Bible open because tomorrow they're going to be in a different situation and they're going to need those scriptures. We keep the Bible open because Thai girls really are sold into prostitution and African boys really get sold onto fishing boats and and because death and disease and diagnosis happen week after week after week, we keep the Bible open because tomorrow we'll be in a different place than today and still the Bible will speak. Isaiah 40 verse 8 says, The grass withers, The flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. I know of nothing with so much hope as the Holy Bible. To take your hymnal and turn, or from memory, we'll just sing those words we sang together. Sing them over again to me, wonderful words of life. I believe it's page 287. First time I heard these words, that's 286. First time I heard these words, I was laying in the cabin of camp meeting in the Oregon campgrounds, a little tiny girl. First time I really remember hearing this song, 6.30 a.m. at the Bible study meetings. Those adults got up morning after morning after morning. And I remember hearing this song. Would you just sing the first verse with me? Sing them over again to me. Wonderful words of life. Let me more of their beauty see. Wonderful words of life. Words of life and beauty. Teach me faith and duty.
God, that these words you've given us will continue to inspire us. Draw us to these words. Keep us a healthy, honest, thinking, passionately thinking community until the day you come. In Jesus' name, amen.